I just think that failure is just, it's just a sign that you're pushing and pushing is good. You could stay comfy. You can stay on the couch. You don't have to fail, you know? You don't even have to try if you don't want to. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Thank you for welcoming me into your ears as we chalk up for a chat today with the trad princess herself, Mary Eden. Mary is perhaps best known for her cracking off with climbing at an elite level, but as you will hear in our chat today, she doesn't consider herself a quote-unquote off-with climber. She is a climber. A climber who seeks discomfort and charges headlong into styles that challenge her. Bouldering, sport climbing, crack and off-with, yeah, she gets after all of it and at an incredibly high level. Just a few months ago, Mary accomplished a life goal when she became the first woman to send Necronomicron on gear, an insanely cool 100-foot 14A horizontal roof crack in the white rim. It's absolutely mega. Mary is 100% her own thing, at times exuding a trad dad crustiness and at times exploding archetypes as she forges her own path in the sport. She is humble, she's honest, she is an incredible example of what can be accomplished with focused hard work, an open mind, and a seemingly bottomless well of stoke. So in this chat with Mary, we talk about what it's like to battle up off with jam through heavy cruxes and take a lot of falls. It's exciting and it's also a little bit heady, y'all. And so when I'm feeling heady, especially if I'm out on an adventurous trad climb, I want to make sure my head is fully protected, which is why I wrap it in my Petzl Sirocco helmet, which goes above and beyond the UIAA and CE helmet standards to give an extra level of protection on the top and side of the helmet. Why does this matter? Well, when you're out adventuring, you want to focus on the movement and not get dragged down by fear, and the Sirocco gives you that confidence. And honestly, you don't even notice that it's there. It's ultralight, and it is packed with vents for excellent airflow. Y'all, if you need a helmet, this is the one. Check it out at your local gear shop, or pop on over to Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. All right, so I was out at the Red last week working on the Proj, which is a pretty long and exhausting climb for me, at least with a really high crux. And usually I get a couple good goes in a day on it and that's it because it's just so exhausting. But last week, y'all, I got four solid goes and my last one was my best one. Don't you love when that happens? The last go, best go. I love it. And for me, I give a ton of credit to that happening to Endurex by Fizzy Vantage. It is a science-backed formula, which includes beetroot extract and citrulline malate, which have been shown in studies by people who are way smarter than me to boost endurance and accelerate recovery between high-intensity efforts. The nerds said it works, I felt that it works, and I think you guys gotta try it out. Whether you're looking to climb hard at the gym, or the boulders, sport crag, or on a big wall, you can get more tryhard with the help of Endurex. Check it out. I know you're going to feel the difference. I sure as heck have. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. 
The struggle's carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Honnold Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. You guys, swing on over to honnoldfoundation.org to see the projects they're working on. Nobody is doing solar impact like them. It is so dang inspiring and impactful. I'm really proud to be partnered with them. Pop by honnoldfoundation.org to check it all out. And lastly, a big thanks to the patrons of The Struggle, who for just a few bucks a month are getting exclusive access to pro clinics led by superstar guests of this show, as well as early and ad-free episodes, swag, and other cool stuff. It's a pretty rad community, y'all. Would love for you to join it, and I will share more about that on the other side of this interview. All right, let's get ready to calf lock and butterfly stack our way into this psyched chat with Mary Eden. levels look good we're recording so i think we should just jump right in mary eden welcome to the struggle climbing show hi nice to be here thanks for the invite uh, i'm just so psyched to talk with you uh, i can't wait to jump in our our friend tom randall made the connection here and you all climb out out west quite a bit together uh, it seems like but you started in kentucky or or at least you you grew up in Kentucky, which is where I'm at. Did, did you ever climb at the Red before you moved out west, or did you start climbing out in the desert? No, no. Um, I think I've climbed in the Red maybe less than five times. I didn't start climbing until I was 20. Um, I moved to Moab after I graduated high school, and yeah, I didn't climb in Moab for a second. I was mostly into like hiking and exploring and just kind of taking in the landscape really was into looking for dinosaur fossils and just like taking pictures of rocks. I just loved it. I was in school for geology, so I just was super, super psyched. Um, but yeah, I found climbing in Moab and I lived in Moab for a very long time, um, almost 10 years. It was just right under your nose that whole time. Yeah, I, uh, I've climbed a bunch of different styles, as many as I can and have been able to access and as many places as I could, because uh, I've never believed in being, you know, like a one trick pony. And I've always really enjoyed sampling areas for what they're known for. And so I just love that. Like, I'll go on a bouldering trip. I'll go on a score climbing trip. I'll like, I'll like do the thing. I don't like to seek out what I have close to me when I travel far, if that makes sense. Yeah, I dig that. Yeah. I like that a lot. That's yeah. that's that's really good. It's good advice, I think, for, for all of us because we can get stuck in our lane. Well, I'm excited to jump in and talk about all of this, kind of specifically your training, nutrition, tactics, mental game, and all that. But before we kind of nerd out, I'd like to kind of just zoom out and we all have our own relationship with struggle as climbers. And I'd love to hear what struggle means to you as a rock climber. Oh, the struggle. Oh, I feel like I've just um, existed in a state of struggle my entire career. <laughs> I would say I'm not particularly gifted with movement or like memory of movement. It's taken me a really long time to be able to climb well. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I think the struggle is just like constant. <laughs> and is it something that you 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 specialize or at least have uh, are are quite skilled at a style of climbing you know crack steep crack roof crack off with these kinds of really i mean struggle is the word that comes to mind like almost battle like 
before we get specific into kind of the styles of climbing and, and technique and that kind of thing, is there a part of you that like that, that like feeds on or seeks out struggle or, or has your relationship with struggle as a climber evolved over time? Um, to be honest, I like to seek out the things I'm really bad at. And so I, I get labeled as an off climber, even though like I don't really care about off and haven't even really been doing it that long. It was just something that I was not very good at in my crack climbing, something I didn't particularly enjoy. And so I decided I was like, you know, I need I just need to lean into it and get decent at this and understand this. So when I do bigger routes and longer routes, that this isn't the thing that um, kind of stops me. And um, it was just the pursuit of a mile in every size is why, like, I sought out off with for a minute. I did my wide tour. I'm coming to the end of it. I made like at the start of doing it, I was like, well, I feel like I'll have understood off with if I do like these routes and I made a list and I have one more route on my list. And then for every like other, every other crack size, I have the same like goals. I have similar goals for finger cracks. At one point, my goal was to do 512 in every size crack. And then it was 513 in every size crack. And I got those goals done. Um, and now it's like, the, or then it was climb 14A, and now I'm like, well, more 14s. So it's not really like a seeking of struggling as so much as a seeking in expertise, if that makes sense. Like, I want every size to feel like I understand them truly, um, and I don't want to have, like, a good size. I want to just be good at all the sizes and all the angles of cracks. And I find myself particularly drawn to cracks more than like other things. I do. I love bouldering and I go sport climbing, but um, I like those things the most, the cracks the most, because I feel like they were carved out of the rock by like a master craftsman. And they're just very visually pleasing to me. And they're always in like the best places and they're usually long routes. And I just find them more inspiring on average than I do like a dinky pocketed sport climb, which I like and I have fun and everything, but like really what draws my eyes, those fucking mega desert ticks, you know, like I want to go to the end of my fucking 70 meter rope, you know, and on a bad size and be like, yeah, that felt good. You know, it's not really like the pursuit of struggle. It's the pursuit of flow. Hell yeah. If that makes sense. I love that. Yes. I'm so psyched on crack climbing in like yeah. five minutes. I was just at the red working on my mega proj, which is a, a dinky little pocketed sport climb. And I like them, but you know. it's so good. It really is so good, though. It's actually like it kind of has it all um, except for crack. But I hear you. The aesthetics of like especially those desert desert cracks are like, yeah, it's just artwork. Um, and I love that idea of the, the pursuit of flow. I heard you um, say in a different interview or maybe I read this that. You said life is hard, climbing is play. Yeah. And is that is that still your philosophy? Yeah, it very much is. Yeah, climbing is is what I do for fun. It's what I do for enjoyment. Um, if it wasn't fun, I wouldn't do it. Like life's too short. Why would I do that to myself? Um, there's moments where climbing can be not fun, right? Like a day after not sending your project, you're like bummed. But overall, a day out rock climbing, even being bummed or having a fit, is still just way better than being stuck inside, like 
sitting in front of Excel, you know, like I'm for I'm sure. Psyched. I'm here. Yeah, I escaped the Excel spreadsheets today to go climbing. So yes, I'm. I, I feel that. Yeah. Well, Mary, we're just off to an awesome start here. Let's let's talk about this pursuit of flow then, and let's kind of nerd out. Let's zoom in for for a little bit here. I'd like to talk about training first and foremost. I have some kind of specific thoughts and questions, but before I, I get into that, would love to hear where you've struggled in your training. Oh, um, that's easy. I didn't know how to train at all. I I have um I didn't know how to use gym equipment. Um, cause I was never like a member of a gym. There's no rock climbing gym in Moab. So when I started training, like I, I felt really embarrassed being in front of people trying to like follow, you know, the lattice training worksheets. And I was just like, but I don't know what that kind of exercise actually is. And so I would have to Google how to do the exercise or what it was, or right. proper form. And they had some videos and stuff. And like, I felt like, yeah, I feel like that was like, my biggest struggle was even knowing how to exercise at all. Like, I was I've always just been an outdoor player, just been romping. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. You wouldn't believe how common that answer is when I get it, to be honest, like I talked to Jonathan Segrist recently, and he's like, Oh, training, I didn't even know how to train, you know, or Alex Johnson. And and so it is It is interesting because I think it's a sport where people are drawn to it many times to be outside and to move over rock and have an experience um, in nature. Yeah. But then typically at some point, if we love the sport and we want to advance through it, we hit some sort of kind of stopper or plateau or something and then almost are, are forced to start training. And, and yeah. so what was it? Like, what was it that kind of cracked the training code for you? Well, actually, I have to um, go back in time to maybe like 2016 or 2017, um, probably about six years into my climbing. I had just climbed, I think I had just climbed my first 512 on gear. And it was a finger crack and I was psyched. And, you know, I'm always in this mindset of like pursuit of equality of like, okay, I did my first full finger crack. I wanted to do a 12 off with. I was like, that's balance then to wide. And I had met Tom Randall and Pete Whitaker and they were staying at my place. And, you know, they're just out there just dominating in the white rim. And like, I always found the white, white rim to be especially like inspirational to me. And, you know, they're staying at my place and they invited us, me and my friend to go out and take a look at it, at what they were climbing. And we did. And, they were super nice and they let us like try to pinpoint the route they had just put out. Like they left the gear in it for us and like just sitting there on the side with my shoes like and they're like, go ahead, go for it. We'll give you a catch. I'm like, really? Like you don't mind, you know? And it was like really neat to be able to like, I don't know, usually when pro climbers are like, climbing, they don't invite you on their project, you know, like. Sure. Yeah, especially or their gear or their gear, especially when you're like maybe three grades below their project, right? Like, was this post like century crack? This was like full blown like wide boys crusher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've put up. I think Tom told me I, I might be misquoting, but I think at least over ten five fourteen cracks in the white rim. Was this Necronomicon? No, this wasn't. I can't remember what this was. This was like okay. Just there was this zone that they had like a lot of cracks in, and honestly, it just. I don't even remember. It feels like a fever dream. 
And it was just so nice. And um, I got to like actually touch what really like futuristic hard crack climbing was. That wasn't just like, you know, face climbing on gear. And I was like, I would love to be able to climb like this. This is so cool. And I told Tom, I was like, I don't, I'm not a very good rock climber. And he's like, yeah, you are. Like, you've been climbing and on siding like 5.11 trad for how many years now? Like, you know, what's, what's stopping you? And I was like, well, I go climbing like all the time. Like, he's like, yeah, but do you train? And I was mm-hmm. like, no, that's silly. Why would you train for rock climbing? <laughs> you just go climbing, right? That's how you get stronger, right? And he's like, no, you need to train. And so Tom wrote me um, a personalized little plan to follow. And it wasn't even the loudest plan. It was just like, I hear some basic stuff to get you started. And I followed that. And yeah, that's where I struggled. I didn't want to admit to him. I didn't know how to do a lot of those exercises he lists or even like what they were. Um, But I followed it. And then once I followed it, my grade went up exponentially. It was crazy. Um, I just started. No kidding. Yeah, I just started putting down 12 trad roots. Like it wasn't that big of a deal, which was crazy. And then I, I started training with Lattice. And I think. It did my first 13 in like 2018 or 2019. It wasn't that long ago. But yeah, I've just been consistent with it. You're just kind of like, yeah, that that like consistently ticking yeah. up the grades. And, and obviously climbing is a huge part of that because it's a it's a three-legged stool. There's there's the kind of the training, the mental and the tactical, technical side. And and so one can't train their way to, to to climb at the level at you which you know exclusively but on the other side it does seem like maybe, maybe it's even more so with like trad climbers kind of a almost a, a crustiness or a reluctance to train um t- to some extent there was a definite culture um i mean i learned to trad climb from like a very crusty desert um trad dad and he instilled in me that like sport climbing was dumb and bouldering was dumb and you know onside or die and he changed mm. his ways he did he did change his ways over time um but i changed my ways first <laughs> um <laughs> yeah he saw that you were sending uh the hard 13 uh after doing some training he's like oh no maybe there's something to training climbing's not so bad so uh, was sport climbing part of your training plan that tom yeah. had suggested or or that you yeah. discovered on your own I was a very static climber. I had to learn how to be more dynamic. Um, luckily, I liked to boulder um, because I guided full time. And so um, working with ro- going and playing with ropes after you've been working with ropes all day just felt like I, I didn't want to touch a rope for most of the season. So I, I love to go bouldering after work or on the weekends. And so like that was fine, but I really had to work on uh, my more sport movement and more like being dynamic and uh yeah because a lot of desert climbing is so static and square on right learning is kind of like static and so i had to just learn how to do a lot of that kind of movement um and i think it's so so interesting mary because i think the the common misconception or at least the immediate concept that comes to mind when people say training is like oh hangboard or gym or moonboard or deadlifts which is yes training but you're talking about using bouldering or sport climbing as training. So you're still outdoors, you're still moving over rock, um, but it's just you see it as a style of training to then help you in the other styles of climbing that you're doing. And so I find that very interesting and fascinating, especially for people who 
don't want to just do TRX rings five days a week if you have access to rock climbing. So did you program a certain amount of dynamic training, dynamic climbing styles to help you? Like, I guess, how did you program that training with maybe more gym-based training or just like home-style training? Well, it was a struggle when I was living in Moab. Uh, I moved away about two years ago. It was a struggle when I was living in Moab to train because there there's no climbing gym. And so you could go to Crazy. the you could go to the weight gym. I had a hangboard at my house and just some like free weights at the house. Uh, but mostly, yeah, it was like had to be super intentional with the training. Um, it meant like a lot of the lattice training had bouldering circuits for me um, mm. and just time on the wall in that regard. And so I would have to like seek that out outside or on like people's personal woodies. And some of the woodies were like not ideal because like a lot of the training is just like endurance and time on the wall. And if somebody has like a tiny woody built at a steep angle, you can't really get a lot of time on the wall. Like It's not set for that. You know? Right. Like it's like V7 and up. And they're like, well, I need to spend like this amount of minutes. And, you know, it, so like having a circuit outside, you know, Big Bend was good um, in some other areas. And then just a certain amount of time, like sport climbing too. It was just, you had to be creative in order to finish your worksheets. And that was a struggle. But now I moved to Arizona and there's climbing gyms. It's, it's significantly easier to do it with a climbing gym to help. <laughs> well, it's just so awesome to see the results so quickly, so immediately, you know, I mean, from going uh, essentially plateaued, as you were saying, trad 511, just barely pushing into 512 to then all of a sudden with uh, almost just a kind of a, a minimum amount of training, things that you were getting from Tom that you had to Google to figure out what you were doing, but it, it, but it didn't take long doing that and then working in some dynamic climbing, some sport climbing, and all of a sudden, boom, you're consistently in the 12s, pushing into the 13s, and now obviously... Um, you're you're off to the races and climbing at an elite level, but just getting that training stimulus um, is is really uh, critical, especially for a lot of us, whether we're trad climbers or sport or boulder. If all we're doing is is climbing, um, there's there's low hanging fruit to be gained there, which is great. Um, but with that also can come some injury, or it can come with some overuse, maybe if you're climbing as much outside as you're now just adding training on without dialing back. So I'm curious to hear what uh, your rest routine is like or how you view rest. I'm so bad. Are you? <laughs> I'm really bad. I, Why doesn't that surprise me? Uh, I struggle with resting. So do you program rest or do you just climb when the weather in your body says climb and rest when the weather or your body says rest? I follow the weather. Yeah. So even if your body is saying rest, you're like, well, but condies. I know. I'm really bad. If It depends on like the condies. If the condies are in, I want to be out there. And if uh, somebody's visiting in town, I also want to be out there. Um, so yeah. Like when Tom was here, I was not resting enough. I actually really hurt my right arm. Um, just trying to because my right my right arm is not back a hundred percent like it was so weak for so long like that side of my body I babied for so long that like yeah my right my right side is just needs more work and so like climbing with Tom for a month my right bicep felt like it was gonna like fall off 
And I just needed to stop climbing finger cracks. I just needed like days off and I wasn't taking them. Gaston was in town. We were having so much fun. The condies were perfect. All the friends were in. I I didn't want to miss out. I hear you. You It's it's, climbing is for fun and you're going to go out and have some fun. Then yeah, it's you're you're the boss. But yeah, the injuries. And Tom should have known better. He was injured too. And, and he doesn't, have, he, he's just as bad as me. Like, we're really terrible influences on one another, actually. It's like really bad. I'm like, let's go do the thing. And he's like, that sounds great. Let's go do the thing. And I'm like, that sounds great. Oh, uh, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you guys need a voice of reason in there somewhere. Yeah. Or maybe not. All right, let's talk about nutrition now, Mary. Where have you struggled in your nutrition? Um, I pretty much eat whatever as long as I am eating enough because I'm super active. I burn a lot of calories and I just want to make sure that I'm getting enough protein and enough vitamins and I just need to eat. And, you know, I'm not very particularly like specific on what it is. I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian. I try to eat well, but I also will not deny myself ice cream or cookies if I want that. Uh, Hell yeah. Yeah. Do you keep track, like, uh, you know, how much protein you're bringing in or anything like that? Or um, is it, are you just truly just eating whatever? Uh, A loose track. Like, um, in the morning, I like to eat eggs and, you know, maybe a bagel. Um, I will drink a muscle milk after, like, working out to try to, like, replace, you know, get the protein in as soon as possible. Um, I bring a lunch to the crag, usually, like, a PB&J. And just trying to, like, eat snacks, vegetables every once in a while. I don't really like being um, hard on myself for specific food. I had a a partner for a really long time who was very particular about his diet, and it was never consistent. But then he would impose it on me and shame me for eating or not keeping up with the current diet. And then... It actually caused me for the first time in my life to have like disordered eating because, you know, like you get comments like, oh, I can see it in your face that you um, ate cookies, you know, a couple of days, mm. you know, and I can just see it, you know, and I, that caused me to not feel comfortable eating food in my own home. And so when I'd get at home after work or I'd get off of work and dieting full time, you're like, you're hungry, you know, I would go and get fast food because it was just calories and I just needed calories and I didn't want to go to the grocery store and bring food home and be wrong and be lectured I didn't want to experience that and so I just started like sneaking food yeah I would have my roommate buy snacks for me you know it was just not good and so when I left that whole situation um I felt like free and I honestly craved jello when i was single i was like i just want jello and so i ate like a fucking four things of jello a day for almost two weeks just because i was like i just want to eat jello and i don't know why i haven't eaten this in like maybe since i was a kid but nobody's gonna lecture me and like i'm not gonna get shamed or complained at in public and it's totally okay if i want to eat this jello <laughs> so oh, i just yeah. ate a lot of jello And then I was tired of it and I haven't eaten it since. But, you know, my mind is for like nutrition is as long as I'm eating enough and as long as I'm getting in like vegetables and and stuff and taking my daily vitamins, like I don't really 
care what I eat. Yeah. yeah. I don't really like well, to care what other people eat or like judge what they eat either because you just don't know. Well, thank you so much for just opening up about that. It sounds like it was a really challenging time for you and in, in your life. And I'm happy to hear, obviously, that that you've gotten out and you're in a much healthier place now. And there can be so much judgment and shame, self-shame, as well as shame that we get from other people in our lives uh, in an unhealthy way regarding our diets, our nutrition, what we're eating, and just hearing your perspective there, having you share that, that honesty and, and vulnerability is um, something I'm really grateful for. Uh, and I think a lot of people who are listening will get a lot of value from that, whether they're in a similar situation uh, or not. So so thank you for doing that. And, and you know, before we move on from this chapter, Mary, uh, I guess the last question that I have for you here on nutrition is around fueling in a way to help perform at the max and you perform at an incredibly high level and you battle really hard routes too. you know specifically when we're talking about like off width or tough uh finger cracks where you're kind of going to the max and you're also a guide so you see a lot of clients and and you probably have thoughts on what works for fueling and what doesn't so i'm curious what your perspective is on nutrition just through that lens if I know that the day is going to be like a big day, I find that it kind of like makes me a little nauseous to try to eat like a lot of food mm -hmm. in the morning, but I need to eat something or I get nauseous anyway. So it's kind of like a catch 22. But really what's important to me is like if I eat a sandwich, I like once I get to the crag, if I'm there for an hour and I'm warming up and doing all the things, I like to eat like a sandwich. Um, also, I really um, like high protein bars. <laughs> They're like... I love those. I'll go for those like 12 grams of protein in this bar. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I want that. Yeah. Uh, Me too. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have a super dialed. Um, it's still like, I will still fall into um, this like mindset of um, if I'm stressed out, I will still sometimes fall into food is stressful. I'm going to make the wrong choice. I just won't eat. Um, and so like, that is something I still like am figuring out and so I just will have like um, a constant stock of just like bars and jerkies or something that I can just like have in case I've accidentally like slipped into that like mindset. All right, Mary, I'm excited to jump into tactics with you here as you are quite the tactician. Uh, and before we get specific in some of the climbs that you've done, uh, where have you struggled or where do you struggle specifically when it comes to tactics? I feel like tactics is something and, and the perfection of tactics is something I just particularly enjoy. And so I feel like if I struggle on something in regards to tactics, it would be like doing the thing that I know not to do. You know, like, oh, you bumped that piece forever and you really shouldn't have done that and made that made you tired and then you powered out and you came off the route um, instead of just like going for it you know, not doing what I know to do is the thing I, I would struggle with. Like, do as I say, not as I do <laughs> would sure. be more what I would struggle with. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. It's certainly common for me, uh, essentially knowing what I should be doing versus doing what I know I should be doing. And your placement's an interesting one here. It, it, bear with me because you're going to have to dumb this down a little bit. It's been a bit since I have placed gear 
I started as a trad dad. Now I'm a sport dad. I long to get back to the trad dad days, uh, to be honest. So, you know, let's let's talk about gear placements for a second. You mentioned kind of bumping the same piece and, and getting tired. Where else tactically does gear placement come into play? I think um, as I was learning to push into harder grades, a thing that was a struggle to let go of was stopping to place gear when I was in a crux uh, sequence. And so when I was like learning, because I did so much, like uh, I just years of on-siding trad and climbing in a fuckload of places and different styles, I definitely got in the habit of, um, you know, like stopping as soon as it got hard to make sure I was safe. And sure. like evaluating like what's up ahead, how much I got left, you know, like stopping when it's hard and making sure like, you know, that I had a piece so I could, you know, my fall was going to be good. And, um, and then that like habit was reinforced because I, I guided full time for six years and then you're taught not to fall on your client. Um, you're never supposed to fall on a client. <laughs> and so then I was, it was reinforced to like, as soon as it got hard, like, it's better to just plug in a piece and then pull on it. Um, and so there was like this thing that I had to overcome um, in my personal climbing of like, when it gets hard, I go, I don't stop. Um, and that's something I will still like struggle with if I haven't been working on it um, a whole lot in the like recent time before doing the thing. Um, it's like, I need to always kind of like be battling those habits and and reinforcements and and so yeah like not placing when it's hard um or placing less when it's hard um uh another thing would be i think a lot i see this mistake out of people a lot is they place big pieces where their hands and feet would go in thinner cracks and it's like no 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 leave the pods open for your hands and feet place smaller gear um or pl place above and below the pod uh, another thing um people don't put slings on their cams they think that like just because it's a vertical crack or whatever that they don't need any quick draws or anything like that and it can cause like rope drag or in roofs it can cause the cams to get like sucked inside um so like knowing when you need to extend things um to make the rope run in a vertical line uh, to the chains as much as possible is important yeah. Also knowing like to keep the rope out of the crack um, when you finished like topping out of a like a roof crack because um, otherwise the rope will suck all the cams deep inside. And so just like you would come off of an overhung sport route you and you had to back clean your own draws, you clip into the other side, you do the same thing with trad routes. And trad climbers for some reason don't know that. And I'm always like, it's the same. Totally. Although it's a, a much costlier mistake to make. If you're going to be losing a bunch of cams as opposed to um, just having to work hard to clean some draws or leave the occasional bale beaner. So that's really good advice. Save, save some people some money here on the struggle. Uh, you just ticked off a bunch of really important, I think, and insightful pitfalls. You can tell you're a guide because boom, they were just top of mind what people need to be focusing on. The, the one that I want to zoom in on a little bit here is this note that you made about placing gear while also leaving good hand and foot pods open in a crack 
And, and I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that as well as just the placement in general, kind of in relation to where your body is, right? So when I'm, when I'm sport climbing, kind of the general rule is you want to you clip a bolt as close to your hip as possible. But sometimes you get gripped or you get scared or you get a good stance and you'll clip it way overhead. And of course, that requires you to draw out more rope. And now you're working hard and you're hanging on to a hold for longer than if you would just climb at or maybe even slightly past the bolt. But is that uh, does that rule kind of generally apply to placing gear when you're crack climbing as well? Um, If it's like not above a ledge. And now if it's if I'm standing on a ledge and I'm above a ledge, I want to place high. Um, in general, right. um, I want to place at my waist because it takes less energy to pull the rope up to that point. It's also safer. Um, so always trying to like keep yourself on top rope is a bad habit. And, and I, I try to, I try not to do that. I try to place at my waist as much as possible. And, and about the hand and foot pods, um, I feel like you learn that lesson pretty quickly when you go to do like a hard finger crack and you can't use the pod that you just place the thing and you're like, fuck, it's in the way of my hand. <laughs> yeah, it is. You did that. Right. You did that to yourself. And I just kind of chuckled to myself. I'm like, yep, play small, jam big. Um, so it's kind of um, that mindset. What, but that there's a, like an asterisk there. Like if I could choose, like if the gear was super tiny and on super soft rock and I get a finally a decent sized piece, I'm going to take that decent sized piece of like, the only thing between me and the ground has been a bunch of tiny marginal gear. I'm going to, it's situational sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. There's exceptions to the rule, but um, if you're well protected up to that point, you want to play small jam big. I think that's a great, um, a great rule of thumb. Um, I do think the biggest issue with leading specifically is off with climbers um, struggle leading off with when, when they're first starting to get into it, because when you're leading off with the rope is in your way you're stepping on the rope a lot and so i i will on this podcast give like two two hints of beta for dealing with that one you can keep the rope out of the crack to deal with that and that means like putting quick draws or slings on the big cams and keeping the rope completely outside the crack so you're not stepping on it and it's not getting pinched on your thighs or two is just placing the cams in deeper if you place the cams in deeper, you're not stepping on the rope anymore because it's no longer like on that first like five inches that you need it to be. Right. Um, the risk there is that you can get your cam stuck. So maybe keep some wire coat hangers in your car and manage that. All right, Mary, great stuff in the tactics chapter. And let's now shift our sights towards mental game and mindset. Where have you struggled with your mental game? Um... I struggle with like pushing myself to my limit um, in rock climbing because I think I just, I don't know. I was so, so skiddly super guide for so long that I. So it was that, it was that like guide must not fall mentality kind of bleeding into your own personal climbing. And then even before then it was like on side or die, you know, don't project, don't sport climb, um, be very static. And it was straight from that to guiding and uh it was like don't fall on your people you know it's all about taking care of them and you just do that and I did that six days a week for eight months of every year that was it's so hard to untrain they still really struggle with that and I would say 
the ways I deal with it is um, a healthy dose of score climbing. Um, I constantly need to be falling. Um, and I think a mistake people make with falling practice is that they count their falls in like one or twos every week. And you need to be counting them in like sets of 10, really, um, for it to make a real difference. You should just be falling a lot. Also having the right people around you. Like I'm very sensitive to who I have around me. If I have just like the wrong energy around me, I cannot perform well. And so, yeah, kind of like being aware of what you need and just unapologetically like taking it. Yeah, I've heard you describe yourself as a stoke vampire. I, what, what is that? Yeah, because like I climb really well when people are really um, high energy stoked. Like if they're like really positive individuals who, I don't know, people who are just those special people, um, like Tom would be one of them. He doesn't care how hard you climb. He's not competing with you. He's not competing with anyone. He's competing with himself. Um, he's not like judging you or like being a bro or he's just there to have a good time. And yeah, I'm there to have a good time and to push myself too. And so I respond really well to people who are there to have a good time and who think that rock climbing is fun. Yeah, I'm totally with you on this. I think that we, we can get a little bit overly serious sometimes when we're out climbing. And certainly if you're climbing with the wrong people, people who are just really upset or really negative, it can uh, have a negative effect on your own climbing, your own mental game, of course. And the inverse is true, like you're talking about with you and Tom. If, if you're with psyched people, positive people, they're going to bring out the best in you. So I'm with you. I love that. I agree with that. Most of us are not climbing to pay the bills. But there is also another side of this, which is uh, a strong desire to perform at our best. And you perform at such a high level, surely there are times where you get obsessed with a route or a sequence or, or maybe even an outcome. Uh, I know that I have. And I'm, I'm wondering kind of where that healthy balance is and, and really what your relationship is with failure. Oh, failure is good. Um, mm. Yeah, a lot of people hate failure. They struggle with it. Um, I do a lot of, I do a lot of teaching and it's really hard to get people to let go of this idea of failure of being a bad thing. And I don't even really like to call it failure. I like to call it like stages of growth because if you were climbing well within what you could already do, you would be sending. Like sending, it would be easy, right? Like totally fine. But when you're pushing yourself, the margin of success is like smaller, you know, you're going to fail, quote unquote, on your way to um, improving your overall ability. And um, like people think they're like, oh, I should be doing this or I should be doing that. Or, you know, I used to be able to do the thing where in fact, like usually people have a skewed perception of what they used to be able to do. Like even my plateau now is higher than my plateau like a year ago. It might be less mm -hmm. fit or X, Y, and Z or my having a stressful time in my life or busy, but like my plateau is higher than it was before. I know more now. And so like having like an actual realistic <laughs> uh, view of our abilities and then a realistic view on what we need to do in order to push ourselves to the next level. And that means failing. It means falling. It means 
being a beginner. It means working your weakness and not just knowing what your weakness is, but actually doing it because most people don't work their weaknesses. I'm even like guilty of that. I like I work my weakness, but then I'll be like, I did it for six weeks. I'm like done now. <laughs> totally. I just think that failure is just it's just a sign that you're pushing and pushing is good. You could stay comfy. You can stay on the couch. You don't have to fail. You know, you don't even have to try if you don't want to. Yeah. Yes. I love this perspective. Let's go. Uh, embrace the failure. And it's not even failure. Let's just keep growing and going as climbers. Now, what about for you personally when it comes to having uh, an objective that you're just incredibly passionate about? I always tell myself in moments like that um, where I get really attached to like a goal that is not coming as quickly as I just want it to because like you're like a kid at Christmas. You're like, I want it now. <laughs> you know, I don't want to wait. I want it now. Um, I just like to always keep in mind that I'm not defined by one route or one week or one season or one style or even one sport that that's not who I am and it's not what defines me. And like always reminding myself of that is is really helpful because it's like, oh, I didn't send the thing. Oh, well, like, what do I need to do to send the thing if I really want it? Okay, I need to do this. Okay, I'll go do that. Like, I'm, I'm, it's just such a waste of my mental energy and time to just kick myself for not doing the thing in the person in the arbitrary timeline I've established. I love it. I love it. This is great. It's such good stuff. Well, thank you. Ooh, I just about knocked my desk over. Um, I'm so psyched I almost knocked my desk over. All right, Mary, last chapter here, and that is kind of um, zooming up and, and beyond our own personal climbing and just talking about things that you're passionate about uh, or that bring you joy or purpose uh, that isn't just the personal battle with the next rock climb. W what is that for you? And I love paint. I've painted. Cool. Um, I think I've painted longer than I've done anything else. Love doing that. Super fun. And is this like a, a creative outlet or are you um, are you selling your, your artwork as well? That's more personal of a thing. I don't really like talk about it much with people. Um, it's just something I do and I've always done. And then usually people come over my house and they'll be like, whoa, what artwork is this? And I was like, oh, it's mine. Oh, that's really cool. I have sold pieces in the past and I am heartbroken about it. I don't like selling mm. them. I want them. If I do like send one along, it's usually like a gift for someone. Um, so it, they're more personal. Yeah, it's very pure. I like that. Yeah. I'm getting better. I'm like at least posting pictures of them now. I used to not. Well, I want to talk about that too. Um, if, if we can for a second, because it's, it's almost the other side of that coin where, you know, you've got obviously this very personal side, this very creative outlet, but then you've got this trad princess outlet as well, right? This, this, uh, I wouldn't know if I would call it a persona, but it's your, like your public, it's like you're out facing, you know, stoke and rock climbing and you're a guide and it benefits guides to market themselves. And I think you do a really good job. Like I love the films that you put together. The photography is top notch. It's also fun and funny and you know, you're messing with Tom Randall while he's sleeping and like, you know, there's great, there's great fun stuff on there. Has that kind of taken on a life of its own? I mean, what's it, what's it like to be trad princess? It's me. I mean, it's not a persona. It's actually just me. Um, I don't really curate much. Um, it's what I'm doing. 
what I'm psyched on. I've painted my whole life. And so like, I like beautiful imagery. And yeah, like when I, I think maybe about five years into my climbing, I got into climbing photography and I fucking loved it. It was like, I like to be outside every day if I can, but I don't want to rock climb every day. And I have a really hard time not um, going where are going. <laughs> so I found that climbing photography was a really good way for me to be involved and give back to my friends. And um, also, I just really like the way rock climbing looks. I think it's really beautiful. Like all of my paintings have changed um, from when I first started. No, I was a kid. But like they went from like fantasy paintings and like I used to paint pictures of like centaurs and like fairies and shit to I moved out west and I, I didn't I didn't uh, rock climb for a year, but I was like painting the western landscapes and like really was into that. And then I got into climbing and then all of a sudden it was like the views from towers and then it was like rock climbers on roots. And now it's like parts of rock climbing and rock climbers on roots and like um, like climbing became part of everything that I really liked doing it just really took over my art. And like climbing photography, I fucking love taking photos of climbers. I love watching movement. Um, so I really like videoing climbers. Um, I have like such a back. I, but one thing I hate is processing my photos and videos. <laughs> Probably like six years of backlog. I swear. I'm really, wow. really bad. <laughs> it's going to be like a, a pretty amazing treasure hunt when you go through those old hard drives and find these incredible adventures that you've had that you may have totally forgotten about and and when you do please post them on instagram uh i think you do such a great job with your stories the adventures uh certainly the content that you add but also just the honesty your voice in in your instagram feed is really fun to follow so we'll keep an eye on all of that for all the lost photos and of course all the adventures you have to come and, and mary thank you again for taking the time today just a total pleasure to talk with you i'm really psyched for all that you have going on. And also you have lit the psych in me to get out and, and do some more crack climbing, maybe try some off with, just put myself out of the comfort zone, embrace the failure and try hard. So I'm gonna do that and thank you again. Let's, uh, let's connect again when we can. And that wraps up our chat with the trad princess who's really more of a trad queen at this point in time, I think, don't you? Now, what did you all think of this chat? I loved it. Let me know. Let Mary know. You can find us on Instagram at Trad Princess, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, in a second, I'm going to hit you with my takeaways and hook you up with some swag. But first, let's give some love to the brands that are giving love back to The Struggle. You know I love them. You're going to love them. Listen up. Shout out to Petzl for being the official gear sponsor here at The Struggle. If you're looking for a super light, super strong helmet, check out the Sirocco when you stop into your local gear shop. It is the best of the best when it comes to protecting your melon and going above and beyond the standards for top and side protection. Access the inaccessible at Petzl.com. And the psych is high for Fizzy Vantage, y'all, the official climbing nutrition sponsor here at The Struggle. Try Endurex to level up your recovery and endurance game so that you can train harder and climb longer and perhaps score that oh-so-sweet end-of-day send-go. I love it, along with all other science-backed products. They are helping me to take my training and climbing to new heights, 
and I think they're going to do it for you too. Give them a shot. Look them up in Europe at the Epic TV online shop and in the US at Select Gyms and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. So my big takeaways from this conversation with Mary are in the tactics and mental game sections, gaining comfort with gear placements so that I don't waste precious time and energy plugging up crux sections more than necessary, and of course resisting the urge to place high for that temporary top rope. Both are things that I need to work on as I put my trad dad helmet back on. Also, I just loved what Mary said about climbing with people who bring out the best in you and reminding myself that climbing is fun. Even when I'm getting my teeth kicked in by a route, climbing is fun. What a gift that we get to go out and battle these rocks and just have fun at the crag with good people. It's great perspective for all of us, whether we're at the gym or we're climbing a big wall. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode. Big, big love for all the patrons out there. If you're not a patron, now would be a great time to check it out for about the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap beer each month, and I will take both. You can help me to make more fully psyched episodes like this one that you just heard, and you'll also get exclusive access to all of the patron perks, including our super popular pro clinics conducted by guests of the show and only available to patrons. If you can support, awesome. Love it. If you can't, I totally get it. Either way, I'm going to keep working my harness off for y'all here in the podcast slash utility closet. Swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to learn more. If you can support. Thank you. I love you. And lastly, The Struggle's a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. This show was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. The struggle makes us stronger. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world.